We are in the second part of John chapter 13, verses 18 to 38, and you'll see how this begins sort of abruptly. That's because we're in the middle of a conversation, in the middle of a chapter. And we're going to read, pick up in verse 18 of chapter 13 of John. John chapter 13, verses 18 to 38. Hear the word of the Lord. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate bread has lifted his heel against me. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he had said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, Buy what you need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself, and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, Where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let's pray. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our Rock and our Redeemer. Amen. On this date, March 15th, but in 44 BC, Brutus, Julius Caesar's nephew, joined in a plot against the life of Julius Caesar, and they murdered him on the famous Ides of March. The famous line from Shakespeare's play, Et tu, Brute, then fall Caesar. The nephew betraying the uncle. In the mid-1800s, Alfred Redl was an Austrian army officer, and he was selling secrets to the Russians, which ended with the slaughter of many Austrian troops. Maybe you remember this, Aldrich Ames, In the 1980s, he was a CIA agent uh, who had a wife with very, very expensive taste. 
and he wasn't able to satisfy her taste, or apparently his own, on his CIA agent salary. And so he was making millions by selling the names of other agents to the Soviet Union. And you can imagine what happened to some of those other agents. And Aldrich Ames is uh, spending life in prison. And then there is perhaps the most famous betrayal of all time. Judas, one of Jesus' twelve disciples, betraying him. And we come to the clear announcement of that betrayal in this chapter. But it's interesting to note the contradictions and the, the juxtaposition of this chapter because the announcement of this betrayal and the, the last steps to execute this betrayal set off a discussion about love. And so we have these, these contrasts of betrayal and love. In verse 18, as I said, we're picking up in a conversation. And Jesus has just washed the disciples' feet in the first part of this chapter. And then he says to his disciples, you are all clean. And then he says something a bit vague. He says, but not all of you. And he picks up that idea again in verse 18. I am not speaking of all of you. I know whom I have chosen. And then he quotes from Psalm 41, which we read earlier in the service. But he who has, uh, who he who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And it's not entirely clear to us what that expression means. There are different ideas about what it means to, to lift up one's heel against someone else. But even if we can't get the exact nuance of it, obviously giving the, the sole of your foot to somebody is not a positive motion. And it's quoted here in the, in the context of this betrayal. Somebody eating the dish, eating from the same dish as someone else, and then lifting up the, the sole of his foot against him. Now it's interesting that the foot comes up again. What did Jesus just do? Jesus had just washed the disciples' feet, apparently even Judas' feet. And what did Judas do then? He lifted up his foot against the Master, that the Scripture might be fulfilled. And then he says in verse 19, I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. Now we have seen that expression, I am, a number of times in the Gospel of John. And sometimes it has a predicate. I am the bread of life, for example, or I am the door, or I am the good shepherd. But there are a few times that it shows up without any predicate. It is simply, I am. And in some of those instances, it simply means, I am He. I am the one that's in question here. But in other instances, we have seen a number of times that it has at least overtones of what we find in Genesis chapter 3 and then again in Isaiah, the divine title, the way that God introduced Himself to Moses and said, and said, tell Pharaoh that I am has sent you. And if we can read, and I think it's proper to do so, if we read those overtones of divinity here in, in this verse, we see that even as Jesus is announcing the betrayal and, then, and that Judas is going to lift up his, his heel against him, he is saying, I'm telling you this beforehand so you know that when it takes place, it wasn't some sort of, some sort of 
thing that slipped out of God's control. It wasn't, a, it wasn't an accident. It wasn't something that, that was out of my control. I want you to know, I'm announcing it beforehand so that you know that when it happens, you believe that I am. I am in control even of my own betrayal. Which is why it was announced beforehand that it would happen. That we might believe that He is, that He is divine, and He is in control of everything that is happening, even His own being handed over by one of His own disciples. Now, after that, he, he says something, and it's not entirely clear why he says this. It seems like an aphorism, a truth in verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. Now, of course, he's about to pass off of the scene, and he's about to send his disciples out as apostles, as sent ones. And so he's telling them that the one who receives you receives me, the one who receives me receives the one who sent me. But there may also be a a negative implication here. The one who receives Jesus receives the one who sent him, But what about the one who kicks kicks up his heel against Jesus? What about the one who refuses to receive Jesus? What does that say about him? Well, it says that he's rejecting the one who sent Jesus. Now, after saying these things, we find again that Jesus was agitated. And we found that a number of times, a few times, a couple times so far. He was agitated uh, when he was at the tomb of Lazarus. It says Jesus was troubled in his spirit. And then he testified and he used that expression when he wanted to announce something particularly noteworthy that he wanted to, to, to record in the disciples' minds. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Now this is news. Up to this point, he has talked about the fact that he would be betrayed. He's talked about that there was going to be one who lifted up his heel, a vague expression. There were, there were intimations that something like this was going to happen. But now he says very, very clearly, one of you will betray me. And one of the most frightening verses that I know is verse 22. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. Now, why is that frightening? Well, it's frightening because we have read about false disciples all through the Gospel of John, haven't we? Chapter 8, where many believed in him, and by the end of the chapter, they wanted to kill him. And many turned away from him when his sayings were too hard. And and we've seen this this idea through the Gospel of John that there are those who believe because of signs, there are those who don't believe, and those who believe because of the word that Jesus spoke, which is the, the full faith. And here we have one who was one of the disciples, and he went undetected for these more than two years. And none of the other disciples were saying, I bet it's Judas. I'm sure it's Judas. I've been noticing something strange about Judas. He went undetected all of this time. And he was, as one of the others, preaching, perhaps healing, casting casting out demons with the other disciples. And there he was. He was not one of them after all. He was going to be the one that would betray. Well, of course, the disciples were curious. And one of the disciples, in verse 23... It says, one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at table 
at Jesus' side. We saw last week that in special meals, the Jews adopted the Greek and Roman custom of using a low table, having cushions, leaning on their left elbow, and eating with their right hand. And so they were, would have their feet out from the table, and so the one who was essentially in front of Jesus could easily lean back and whisper something to Jesus. And so this disciple, who's described here for the first of five times in the Gospel of John, as the one whom Jesus loved. Now, we will get later to talk more about this one whom Jesus loved, but it's a curious expression, isn't it? And we should not read it like the favorite. It's not a boast here. The one Jesus loved, uh, in contradistinction from the other ones, we shouldn't read it like that, but we should read it as the one who is amazed that the fact that Jesus loved him, that he's a disciple that Jesus Loved, which is, which is really an amazing declaration. And it, it, it's a surprise, of course, to all of us. And it's a surprise to me as well. That Jesus would love even me. That, that I could describe myself as, as a disciple whom Jesus loved. And we'll see the extent to which Jesus loved and loves His disciples later on. But Peter motioned to this disciple. Peter apparently was, was seated farther away. And it says that Peter, taking the initiative like he often did, he motioned to the disciple whom Jesus loved and, and gave him a sign saying, Hey, ask him. And so this disciple whom Jesus loved leaned back and said, Who is it? And Jesus gave a sign. And he gave this sign to the disciple whom Jesus loved. He didn't apparently announce this to everyone, so it wasn't known by all of them. Jesus said, well, the one to whom I give this morsel, it says bread, it could have been meat, but probably bread when I have dipped it. And then he dipped the morsel in a dish, and then he gave it to Judas, and he's given his full name here, uh, Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. Giving, giving solemnity by giving the man's whole name. Now, this was a common thing to do at a meal. Uh, this is what we do when we're having parties as well. Not recently and not in these days. We're trying to limit this sort of thing, of course. But in normal sort of festive situations, we do that sort of thing as well. There are dishes on the table and we'll, we'll say, Here, try this. And what kind of a gesture is that? That's a friendly gesture of a host to a guest. That's a, that's a kind gesture. That's a, a gesture of invitation, a gesture of welcome. And that's what it was in this case. He was reaching out to Judas with a friendly gesture while at the same time indicating that he was the one. And by so doing, he was giving Judas, he was giving Judas one more opportunity to turn back. Verse 26 says that he gave the the morsel to Judas, but Judas was too far gone by that point. And there's a terrifying description of what had happened to Judas. It says, Then after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. He was already, as we read earlier, that already he was under the suggestion and the influence of Satan who had put it into his heart 
But now it looks like there was a, a complete taking of possession of the will of Judas, not against Judas's will, but in accordance with Judas's own will. And then Jesus said another vague thing to him, and he said, "What you are going to do, do quickly." And this is the comparative of the word quickly, and so we could translate it as do more quickly. What you're going to do, do more quickly. More quickly than what? And what is it that he's going to do? And the other disciples heard him say this. But this also could have been an invitation to Judas. What you're going to do, he doesn't say what he's going to do. What you're going to do, are you going to repent? Are you going to turn back from this? Then if you're going to do that, do it quickly while there's still time. Or, if this is your will, if this is what you've decided, then go ahead and do it quickly and get this over with. And it says that some thought, because Judas had the money bag, we learned about that already, that Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or he should give something to the poor. That was not... That those were not outlandish possibilities. It would be unusual to send him out in the middle of the feast. But, but if this was the, the feast of the Passover, there was also the feast of the unleavened bread to come. And so maybe they were thinking, well, we need, fee- we need bread or supplies for the rest of the feast. And it was common, like it is in our day, during holiday times, to, to give special offerings for the poor. And so they were trying to figure out What in the world Jesus was saying when He said to go do it quickly? But it says what Judas did in verse 30. After receiving the morsel of bread, He immediately went out. And then we have this little declaration. And it was night. Now, all through the Gospel of John, we have imagery. And one of the favorite images that John uses is light and darkness. In fact, the Gospel almost starts that way in verse 4 of the first chapter. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. The true light, verse 9, the true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. Yet the world did not know Him. Light has come into the darkness. Light is shining. And it says here that Judas went out immediately and it was night. I don't think that's simply a time reference here. It's talking about that in which Judas was enveloped. Because at the Passover, by definition, with the calendar that they used, there was a full moon that night. It was not dark Physically speaking, there would have been a full moon that night, but not for Judas. Because Judas was completely enveloped in this darkness. He was turning his back on the light and walking headlong into the darkness in which he lived. It was night. Now that's the first part. That's the betrayal part. But there's something curious about what his departure sets off in Jesus' conversation with His disciples. And we've seen this take place already once. Do you remember when the Greeks showed up after the triumphal entry? And they, they went to, to, to Philip and said, we would, we would like to see Jesus. And they go, 
Philip and Andrew go to Jesus and say, there's some, some Greeks here who want to see you. And Jesus doesn't exactly answer their, their petition. He says, he says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So the arrival of the Greeks set off the declaration that the, uh, that the Son of Man was to be glorified. His hour had come. And then Jesus said something curious right after that about a grain of wheat falling to the ground and dying. So he was to be glorified, and yet this grain of wheat was to die to produce much fruit. It's the same sort of dynamic that takes place here. Look at verse 21. After saying these things, I'm sorry, not 21. If you look at verse 31, when he had gone out, Jesus said, so when he had gone out, Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified and God is glorified in Him. If God is glorified in Him, God will also glorify Him in Himself and will glorify Him at once. The same sort of dynamic. Something definitive happened and then Jesus announced that the hour had come for Him to be glorified and that God would be glorified in Him and that He would be glorified by God. So the time, the hour for His glorification has come. Everything has been set in place. The nations have showed up seeking Jesus. The hour has come. And now Judas has gone out into the darkness to betray Him. The hour of of, of Jesus' glory has come. Now, as throughout this Gospel, we have this, this combination of Jesus' glorification with His death. In verse 33, little children... He speaks to them very tenderly. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Of course, referring to His death. Once again, two verses next to each other. Now the time has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I'm going away. I'm going to die. And He says to them, where I am going, you cannot come. Now, Jesus then gave His disciples marching orders. He says, I'm going away. You can't come where I'm going. I already told that to the Jews. He told that to the Jews back in chapter 8. Now He says it to His disciples. You can't come, but I'm giving you your instructions. And He calls it a commandment. He says, a new commandment I give to you. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you. I'm going away. This is what you should do in the meantime until we're together again. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Now, this commandment to love is not a new commandment, strictly speaking. If you go back to Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, the most well-known verse of Leviticus, and probably one of the most well-known verses of the Bible, is in Leviticus 19.18, which says, Love your neighbor as yourself. So, it's not a new commandment to love. But there is a new aspect to this commandment. And that is the extent, the standard, the measure of the love, Jesus has increased it significantly. And that was not from a low base. Because if we think about the radical nature of the command to love your neighbor as yourself, we can get easily overwhelmed. And what does it mean? It doesn't mean just to have warm feelings toward your neighbor like you have warm feelings toward yourself. It means to do for your neighbor what you do for yourself. And that's a a huge command that has many implications and 
ramifications that we'll never, ever be able to fulfill completely. So even, even that level is, is uncalculably high. Love your neighbor as you already love yourself. But Jesus ramped it up even more. He said, love one another as I have loved you. Love one another as I have loved you. And of course, how had he loved them? And here he's, he's saying, I've already done this, even though the act has not been accomplished, but everything has been set in motion. The, the beginning of the end has started. And so he can speak about this, this supreme act of love as if it's already happened. And what is that? Of course, that's his death. That's his laying down his life. And that's what he says to the disciples, and he says that to Christians of all age. Love one another as I have loved you. Not just like you love yourself, but love one another like I have loved you. Now, if we think about the implications of that, it's easy to go even get even more overwhelmed, isn't it? And, and we might think of a scenario if we're with a, a brother or sister Christian and somebody comes up with a, a, a lethal weapon and, and, and asks us to choose which of us to die, and, and we say, we'll, we'll do that, we'll do that. Now, that's not likely to happen to many of us, thankfully. Uh, maybe that's likely to happen in, in other parts and in other ages, but that, that's not likely to happen. And so if that's all this commandment means, then we're probably not going to have to worry about it too much. But it's actually much more practical, and it is, uh, gets to the nitty-gritties of how we live our lives. Because dying, dying is a question of denying Denying our lives. We could say denying our preferences, denying our wills, denying our purposes, and giving those up, dying to those that we might pursue the, the benefit of other people. So it's not just a, a worst case scenario situation if, if somebody has to die, but rather all Christians need to be practicing this with one another. And Jesus says, if you do this, if you do this, people will know that you are my followers. And that's how it works. That's how it works. There, there is, is something that draws people from the outside like almost nothing else, and that is Christians loving one another. And I have heard that time and time again when people would come into our church in Mexico and they would stick and they would become a part of the church, and we would ask them, what brought you into the church? What was it? And they would almost invariably mention two things. One was, you people are really serious about the Bible, the Word of God. And I learned the Bible, in many cases for the first time, because I heard it taught and preached in your church. The Bible brought me in. And I saw how you treat each other. I saw how kind you are to each other and how you look out for each other and how you love each other. That's the testimony of the Christian church and of Christians. But unfortunately, when we don't do that, it's one of the the biggest obstacles to having an effective testimony in the world. When people come in and they find Christians that are divided and bickering and selfish and uh, self-important and competitive with one another, then why in the world would they be interested in what we have to say? 
So this is key to our testimony as the people of God, that we love one another even as Christ has loved us. Now, this standard, even the lower standard of love your neighbor as yourself, will always be a goal for us, never an accomplishment in this life. This, even more so, will always be a goal for ourselves and for our churches, never an accomplishment that we can tick off. But even so, as we pursue this, people will be able to say, I don't know what those folks believe. I don't believe what those folks believe. But I can't argue with this. They are striving to love each other. Now, Peter, Peter passed right over this new commandment. Because something else that Jesus had said got his attention. And that was that Jesus was going somewhere and he couldn't go. And nobly, quite nobly, and with with deep affection for Jesus, Peter blurted out, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus repeated, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, verse 36, but you will follow afterward. Now, as in many places in the Gospel of John, there are statements that somebody, sometimes Jesus' enemy, sometimes Jesus' disciple, sometimes Jesus himself, they make, and they have more meaning than is apparent at the time. And we will find out at the end of the Gospel of John that this verse has more meaning than is apparent here. That is, Jesus is saying, I am going a certain way, and you will go that way as well, Peter, but not yet. We'll find out what that looks like for Peter later. Uh, you will follow in my footsteps afterwards. But Peter was not taking that. He said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? And then he says this, I will lay down my life for you. We have heard that expression before. If you go back to chapter 10 of John, where Jesus is teaching about uh, the good shepherd, he said, I am the good shepherd. And what does the good shepherd do? The good shepherd, this is the same expression, lays down his soul, lays down his life for the sheep. And now Peter picks up that expression and he says to Jesus, I will lay down my life for you. And then Jesus answers him with a question. And we can read this question, I think, effectively this way. Will you lay down your life for me? You see, back in chapter 10, Jesus had already made this clear. Who was laying his life down for whom? Jesus is saying, I am going to lay down my life for you. Peter, do you think you're the one who's going to lay down your life for me? On the contrary, Peter, I'm the one who is going to lay down my life for you. But we can also read this in this immediate context where he is bringing Peter up short and showing Peter that his great willingness, his affection, his love for his master would not be met with an ability to fulfill his willingness when the time came. Will you lay down your life for me? Actually, Peter, that's not how it's going to play out. Truly, truly, I say to you, another solemn declaration, truly, truly, I say to you, The rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. And here that prediction, 
not only of the betrayal of Judas, but also the denial that Peter would do when the time came, when he was so sure that he would be able to lay down his life for Jesus. Now, we will get back to Peter in due time. We're going to have a few more chapters of teaching in chapters 14, 15, 16, and then a prayer in verse 17. And then we will pick up the narrative once again, and we will get back to Peter and to Judas and to see how all of this plays out. But we should not make the same mistake as Peter did in this instance, and we should not uh, pass over Jesus' command, because that's our takeaway for today. Uh, The marching orders that Jesus gave in his absence are the marching orders for us as his church. And as we saw last week, um, sometimes we want to do big things, and Peter wanted to do a big thing. But what we need to do first, like Jesus directed Peter to do, was to remember and to concentrate on and to rejoice in the fact that Jesus already did the big thing for us. That Jesus is the one who laid down His life for all who trust in Him. And then, in the light of laying down His life for us, now it makes sense. Now out of that we can live and lay down our lives for each other. And let's put these two two sections of chapter 13 together. What did we see last week? Last week we saw the example of how we're to love one another. And what was that? It was by doing menial, degrading tasks to serve one another, like washing each other's feet. We had the, the example last week. And now we put that example together with the measure or the extent of how far we should go in our love for one another. And that is to the extent that Jesus went in laying down His life for us. So let's pray. Our God, we thank You for Jesus, the One who laid down His life for all of His people. And we pray that we would be numbered in those people through faith in Him. I pray for all this morning hearing Your Word preached in this place or in any other place, that You would use Your Word to draw people to Jesus, the One who laid down His life for us. And I pray that those who believe in Jesus, that we would distinguish ourselves as His disciples by the love that we have for one another. That we would be willing to do the the simple tasks, sometimes degrading tasks that need to be done, and that the extent of our love would be a reflection of the extent of Your love for us. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.